Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Uncork the Sun with the Vinstitute Wine School. I am your host, Moss Shurkogel. That's M-O-S-S-S-C something or other L. And I want to start today by asking you a question. Where do you buy your wine from? And I don't mean what liquor store do you go to, or whether you buy wine directly from the winery. Pat on the back if you do. No, what I want to know is, what part of the world, what region, does the wine that you like to drink come from? Because in the world of wine, this is a question that matters. And it's something that I know can be quite intimidating to people who are just starting to learn about wine, because there seems to be uh, regional biases. It's almost like backing a, a football team. If you decide that you like French Sauvignon Blanc from Sancerre, does that mean you just offended all the fans of Puy Fumé? Are you making enemies with this? There's a lot of politics involved, or at least so it would seem. I, I do try to reassure people that, in fact, the world of wine is not quite as partisan-like, and that liking a certain wine from a certain place is not necessarily going to omit you from enjoying wine from another place. But even if you're not making enemies in the liquor store when you choose a certain bottle of wine from a certain region, it is still worth noting where it comes from. Because wine is influenced tremendously, ultimately, by where it comes from and the conditions in which it's grown. When you buy a box of cereal, you don't usually check to see where it was produced or manufactured, and you certainly are not going to find out where the grain was harvested from. Even when you buy uh, other types of alcohol, like spirits or mass-produced beer, uh, you know, when you buy a bottle of vodka or, uh, you know, a blended whiskey, not specifically from a certain distillery, you're usually not checking to see where the ingredients came from. That kind of interest is usually reserved for artisanal products, craft products. But more often than not, that has something to do with supporting the local economy or uh, regional pride, where you want to know that you're buying apples from the Okanagan Valley because then you're supporting BC business. But you might not be able to recognize the difference in flavor between the same type of apple that's grown in BC or in Washington. When it comes to the world of wine, however, there is more than just regional pride that plays into the decision of where to buy a bottle of wine from. It's because even in mass-produced volumes of wine, even in the largest producers in the world, there is a regional taste. There is a character, there is a density, there is an alcohol level, there is a flavor that's all coming from the terroir of where those grapes are being grown. And with wine selections coming in internationally from maybe 15 different countries, all of which are then subdivided into smaller regions within themselves, one of the major challenges in learning to appreciate and understand wine is just learning to understand the geography and where things are from and what that's going to mean for the taste of your drink. By the way, for those who are interested, the reason that I said 15 countries is because even though there are 73 countries in the world that make significant amounts of wine, 90% of the world's wine comes from just the top 15. And those 15 countries are, in order of production from most to least, Italy at number one, followed by Spain, France, the United States, China, Argentina, Chile, Australia, South Africa, Germany, Portugal, Romania, Greece, Russia, and New Zealand. Canada, for our part, is down at number 28, which puts us below places like Uruguay, the Ukraine, Moldova, and Brazil, but above places like Liechtenstein? Anyway, region of origin is very important to winemaking and to wine buying. 
But how does a consumer actually understand where it is their wine is coming from? Unless you have word of mouth or some other primary connection, you're pretty much always gauging it based on the label. And some labels can be wildly confusing, or they can be very simple and very clean. Just right here on my desk in my very professional home office. I have a bottle of wine from Church and State. What am I doing? What are you doing? That I'm going to be using for a live stream tasting just this very evening. And the label of the bottle is crisp and white, with bold white on black font saying Church and State Wines. And below that it says 2017 Merlot BC VQA Okanagan Valley. And then there's a little bit of fine print down below saying the alcohol level, the fact that it's red wine, product of Canada, 750 milliliters. But that's it. A casual glance in the liquor store, and you get everything that you need. Name of the winery, date of the vintage, type of wine with the grape, and the words BC VQA Okanagan Valley. That last line of text is what we are going to be digging into today. What does it mean when it says BC VQA? Today we talk about appellations and geographical indications. A geographical indication is a sort of territorially trademarked label that is applied to a product to indicate that it came from a certain location. But now sometimes instead of the term geographical indication, or GI to make it easy, we use another term, and that's appellation. In many ways, an appellation of origin is very similar to a geographical indication. It signifies that the production materials came from the place being indicated, However, an appellation is defined as marking the fact that the quality and character of a product must come exclusively from that location. In other words, because I know that sounds almost identical, grapes could come from a geographical indication, move to a different part of the province, and be turned into wine, and they would still be able to be signified as from that GI. But for an appellation, the quality and character has to come in that location. So your production facility would need to be there as well, because the indication is that the production, in this case the winemaking, would also have an impact on the character of the wine. So an appellation tends to mean that everything comes from and is happening in this location, whereas a GI can mean that just the principal materials, like grapes, are coming from that location, and it doesn't really matter where they're made. This matters for British Columbia because British Columbia as a province is considered to be an appellation, but the different little areas in British Columbia are considered to be GIs. So if you're making wine from BC fruit within British Columbia, then you are part of our appellation. But your GI may differ depending on what part of BC you're sourcing your fruit from, regardless of where the winery is. But before we dig too much into the BC content, I want to get a really quick word in about the history of appellations and GIs in wine production. And to talk about the history, we have to first understand the two functions of an appellation or a GI. Why do we have them? What are they for? Well, I've already basically explained one of the reasons, and that is education. When you look at the label of a bottle of wine, it should tell you where it's from so that you can then consider all the forces and influences that are going to shape that wine and make it taste a certain way. These designations exist to help us understand and make decisions about wine. But the second reason why appellations and GIs exist is for protection. 
And here is why they're relevant to producers, as opposed to just consumers. Around the world and throughout history, appellations have been used to delineate who is allowed to make a certain type of wine and who isn't. The very first protected GI in recorded history was Chianti, the Italian wine region. And this was drawn up in 1716. And at that time, it was defined that only the producers within a certain area of Chianti were able to make wine that was called Chianti. And part and parcel of this protection was also the use of that bulb-shaped bottle that has the, uh, the wicker basket around it. Only the people in this certain area could make Chianti wine, call it that, use these certain types of grapes, and put it in that bottle. And so the Chianti region is the oldest protected GI in the world. But when we think about the protection of wine areas and the rigidity of what grapes need to be grown in certain places and not in others, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I always think France. And the French committee to designate and protect certain GIs uh, was actually only founded in 1935. That's the INAO, and they're in charge of maintaining France's appellations. But the most famously insular and defensive French wine was protected from actually far before that. In the late 1800s, that's when Champagne officially got its designation as a wine that could only be produced in a specific protected area and only using certain grapes and certain techniques. When Champagne was first designated in this way, there were riots started by all the people who were left out of this designated area. The people who had been producing Champagne but now could not call it that. There was violence, there was looting, and millions of bottles of Champagne were destroyed. Like I said at the beginning, wine regions are important. So important, in fact, that, uh, do you remember your grade 9 social studies classes? The Treaty of Versailles, the most significant of the treaties that were written to end World War I, has a clause about champagne in it. Article 275 of the Treaty of Versailles specifically reaffirms the protection of champagne. These days, all of the major wine-producing countries will have their own designating body that regulates and controls appellations, and they all have their own different terms for it. You'll see when you buy a bottle of Italian wine, there's usually a little tag around the bottom of the capsule that says DOCG or DOC. In France, it's AOC. In Spain, it's DO, sort of designation of origin. In the United States, it's called an AVA, an American Viticultural Area. And here in Canada, it is the VQA, and that stands for Vintners Quality Alliance. The VQA, like many aspects of Canadian wine, started off in Ontario. And then the system was adopted in British Columbia in 1990. In the wake of NAFTA in 1989, the VQA system was seen as a way to encourage BC producers to attain a higher standard in quality of winemaking to compete with international products that would now be flooding our market. If you want to hear more about that, listen to episode 13 of this podcast where I talk more in depth about BC's wine history. Since its inception, the BC VQA system has always been optional. BC wine producers are encouraged, but ultimately make their own decision of whether they want to participate. And even if they choose to participate, they may not choose to certify every single one of their wines as BC VQA. So why would a winery choose not to certify their wines through VQA? Well, first and foremost, there is a cost. There are membership fees, and then there are fees to pay for each wine that gets certified, although membership does come with a couple free certifications every year. 
Although every particular wine needs to be recertified and recertified with every new vintage, which can certainly add up to a decent amount of money for wineries that are producing a large amount of products. As well, there are some wineries that believe that the BC VQA designation is uh, maybe unnecessary, considering that you can still get licensed through the BC Liquor Board and produce and sell wine in BC without getting your VQA certification in a way that is much more lenient and less draconian than some European countries. Those are a couple of the arguments against, so now why would a winery choose to certify their wines as VQA? Well, part of the reason, of course, would be to tap into the marketing and promotion power that lies behind the brand. The organization called Wine Growers British Columbia, uh, which was formerly known as the BC Wine Institute, is a marketing and promotional body that drives a lot of traffic towards their VQ-certified members. As well, there are certain stores that will only carry VQA-certified wines from BC. There used to be dozens of these VQA stores scattered throughout British Columbia until a few years back when the licenses started to be repossessed and redistributed into grocery stores. There are now actually only two independent VQA stores in the province. One of them in Vancouver is uh, the Swirl wine store in Yaletown, and one of them is in Penticton in the Okanagan Valley, the exemplary BC Wine Information Centre. The flip side of the disappearance of these independent VQA stores, though, is that now there are 21 save-on-foods locations across the province where people can buy VQA wine and VQA wine alone while they're also picking up their pork chops. The incentive to have your wine featured in a grocery store in such a high-traffic, high-exposure location is a very appealing reason for a BC winery to take part in the VQA system. But the final reason why a winery might want to have that VQA lettering stamped across the front of their label is a little more philosophical and therefore a little less tangible. But I would argue it's one of the biggest driving influences. And it is because seeing BC VQA on that bottle of wine is a seal of quality. An acknowledgement of the work and care and effort that went into producing that wine. You see, every wine that is submitted to BC VQA for approval has to pass through a tasting panel first. Actually, first, first, before even that, a winery needs to submit a lab report that proves that certain chemical and technical aspects of the wine are within reasonable levels. Then the wine is scheduled to go in front of a tasting panel. The BC Wine Authority, which is the governing body that controls and regulates VQA designations, employs 24 professional tasters who are deliberately non-affiliated with the wine industry or the grape-growing industry, but all of whom have past experience in the industry to give them the proper tools necessary to taste, and they have members of this panel taste through each of the wines that are submitted and either approve or deny them certification based on the quality of the wine. It doesn't necessarily mean that every wine that passes needs to taste objectively good or meet everybody's expectations, but it does mean that nothing should pass through that is actively faulted. As well, having VQA certification proves that your wine is what it says that it is on the label. I'm looking again at this bottle of wine in front of me, this Church and State 2017 Merlot. Because it is certified VQA, It means that when it says 2017, at least 85% of the fruit that went into this had to actually be from 2017. And because it says Merlot, it means that at least 85% of the fruit that went into this had to be Merlot. You might look at that and think, why 85%? Why not 100%? That buffer of 15% is built in as a defense and a tool for winemakers. 
Frequently, winemakers will use other types of grapes to bolster or reinforce a wine just in tiny percentages. A dash here, a dash there, half a percent, two percent. A little bit of Syrah can help promote color, a little bit of Cab Sauve can help promote tannin, and as well, mixing in different vintages of wine can help balance things like tannin or acidity. And although it may seem a little bit disingenuous, most producers agree that having a little bit of room to adapt your wine allows you to produce a higher quality product consistently. Now, typically, most growers will try to make their wine be 100% what it says on the label. But within VQA tolerance, there's that little bit of wiggle room just in case they need it. One thing that is not negotiable, though, is location. On this bottle of Church and State Wines, it says BC VQA Okanagan Valley. And I know by looking at that that two things are 100% true. One is that every single grape that went into this wine came from British Columbia. Nothing imported, all locally grown. And number two, that every single one of those grapes was more specifically grown in the Okanagan Valley. Upon these things, the VQA does not bend or waver. BC VQA is an appellation. Everything that bears the BC VQA title has to be grown and produced within the province. Okanagan Valley is a GI, meaning that if you say Okanagan Valley there on that label, every one of those grapes had to be grown in the Okanagan Valley, even if it was produced at a winery somewhere else. We have a number of GIs in British Columbia, and we are gonna talk about them. Yeah, we are. We're going to finish up today's episode by talking about the different regions within British Columbia. And the purpose of these GIs is to identify and in a certain way acknowledge the fact that British Columbia is a huge place with a wide variety of different climates and ecosystems. And because there are more than 900 different vineyards within British Columbia, you can imagine that they're covering a huge range of territory with all different environmental conditions, different heat patterns, different amounts of rainfall, and different soil composition. In France, you see this distinguished into areas like Burgundy, Bordeaux, the Rhone Valley. In Italy, you've got wine regions like Tuscany, Sicily, or Chianti. In the USA, you have the Napa Valley, or Sonoma, or Finger Lakes out in New York. And in Ontario, you have the Niagara region, you've got Prince Edward County. All of these distinctions are designed to help consumers understand the type of wine they're going to be getting. This information is just as critical in British Columbia as in any of these other areas. And for many years, British Columbia had five major wine regions. Now I want you to play along here. I want you to have some fun with this. I want you, listening, to try to think of what these are. What are the five major areas where wine grapes would be grown in British Columbia? And here's a couple of qualifiers. These original GIs were not always based on volume. Certainly there's one GI that produces 84% of all British Columbia's wine grapes, which means that all the other GIs are relatively small in comparison, one of them producing as little as 0.9% of BC's wine grapes. But each one of them is still worth qualifying, because each one of these wine regions has a history of grape growing and a distinct and definable terroir that isolates them from the others. So what are the five regions? We'll start with the biggest, the most obvious, the one within which I have worked my entire wine career, and which we talk about pretty much every episode of this podcast. It is, of course, 
in the heart of British Columbia, the Okanagan Valley. That's wine region number one. At last count a few years ago, over 750 vineyards in the Okanagan, over 180 wineries in the Okanagan, 84% of the total grape production of British Columbia, from a Soyuz up to Lake Country just north of Kelowna. Next, what's our number two wine region? I'll give you a hint. Geographically, very close to the Okanagan. And it produces the second largest volume of grapes in BC, at a mere 6.5%. But, uh, you know, we know that the Okanagan is taking the lion's share. But if you've traveled to the Okanagan, the odds are good that you have also traveled through this region. Maybe you've stopped at a few wineries, maybe picked up some fruit, maybe bought some samosas. It is the area surrounding the organic farming capital of British Columbia is the Similkameen Valley. Yes, Karameus, Coston, Princeton. There are far fewer wineries there. There's less than 20 wineries compared to the Okanagan's 190 plus. But their 45 vineyards do produce about 6.5% of BC's grapes, which is almost double what the next wine region down the list produces. So what's the next wine region? Number three, it produces somewhere between 3.5% and 4% of BC's grapes. It's got 50 vineyards, and it actually has more than 30 wineries. Although a lot of people might not think of it or suspect it, unless they live there. It is a proud and impassioned place where people who live there can live there their whole lives without even leaving. And those who do leave there, like I did, have a tendency to come back, like I did. Where I live right now, I'm about a five-minute walk away from Church and State Winery, but not the Church and State that's in the Okanagan. The third wine region is Vancouver Island. Vancouver Island as a whole, stretching from the Saanich Peninsula down in the south surrounding Victoria, up to around the Courtney Comox area. That's where you have the northernmost Vancouver Island wineries. There are more than 30 of them, more than 30 wineries on the island. Most of them clustered around the Couchin Valley, where you have a nice rain shadow, hotter, drier growing conditions than a lot of the rest of the island, and some really phenomenal conditions for growing lighter, cleaner white wines, uh, the grapes for sparkling wines, and uh, Pinot Noir, just getting better and better out here. So we've gone through the Okanagan, the Similkameen, Vancouver Island. What is number four? What's left? Well, probably a large proportion of people who are listening to this podcast live in the fourth region, or just outside of the fourth region because it is the most populous area of British Columbia. There's only around 25 wineries in the area, though, and only about 30 vineyards. They produce about 2% of the total wine grapes in BC. So what is this fourth region? It is, of course, the Fraser Valley, where wineries are spread throughout the long drive between Vancouver and Hope, along Abbotsford and Chilliwack, as well as including a couple of urban wineries within the city centres. Now, those are the four, maybe obvious, major wine regions, Okanagan Valley, Similkameen Valley, Vancouver Island, and Fraser Valley. So how could there be a fifth? What else is there? Well, I'll give you a bit of a clue. One of those regions I talked about already, you probably thought that it also included this other region. Or maybe I should say micro-regions. Scattered about, there are fewer than a dozen wineries in this fifth and final region, and there's somewhere between 15 and 18 vineyards. It produces less than 1% of the overall grapes in British Columbia, but it is distinct. It is unique and singular and different enough to be categorized on its own. It is not Vancouver Island. It is the Gulf Islands. 
even though some of these vineyards and wineries in the Gulf Islands are a stone's throw, a 10-minute ferry ride away from Vancouver Island, the wineries on Salt Spring, Denman, Hornby, Pender Island, Quadra Island, that's the furthest north, they have a unique character and culture that is entirely their own. And so there you have the five major growing areas. But, but... If you've been counting 84% of the grapes from the Okanagan Valley, 6.5 grapes from the Similkameen, 3.5 from Vancouver Island, 2% from Fraser Valley, and about 1% from the Gulf Islands, you'll realize that there is about 3% of the pie missing. What does it mean? Where has that 3% gone? Does British Columbia only produce 97% grapes? No, because that's not how math works. Uh, You may also be noting that at the beginning I said, for much of our history, there has been five major regions. That maybe implies that something has changed. And it has. Within the last couple of years, four new regions have been named, with about 22 wineries accumulated between the four of them, and the remaining 3% of BC's wine grapes grown across them as well. These new emerged regions, for they used to be referred to as just emerging, these four regions are the Kootenays, east of the Okanagan, including places like the Creston Valley, the Shuswap, north of the Okanagan Valley, including the towns of Salmon Arm, Sycamuse, and Enderby. If you travel west from the Shuswap, you connect directly into the Thompson Valley region, surrounding Kamloops, and then a short jaunt over the mountains to the west gets you north of the Fraser Valley in the final growing region of Lillooet, a region that only had one winery until just recently. I do not have even close to enough time to go into detail about the character and flavors of these different areas, but you can find out a lot more information by visiting winebc.com. That's the website of Wine Growers British Columbia, the promotional and marketing body for VQA Wine. And there you can learn about and you can explore these different regions And you can also learn about the subregions, which it's a real tragedy to only give such a a glancing mention right here. But to put it briefly, it became obvious quite early on in the development of these geographical indications that saying something as broad as the Okanagan does an incredible disservice to the myriad microclimates that exist within the valley. It's about a three-hour drive to get from the southern end of the Okanagan designation to the northern end, and the climate changes pretty much every 20 minutes on the road. So in 2015, the BC Wine Authority named their first sub-GI, meaning an isolated GI within a GI, and that sub-GI was the Golden Mile, an area just off the west side of the highway between Oliver and DeSoyuz which was deemed to be unique and significant compared to the growing areas surrounding them on all other sides. The Golden Mile paved the way for other regions to become recognized on their own. And remember that the more granularity there is in distinguishing these GIs, the more information you can give to your consumers to understand where these grapes came from. Since then, other sub-GIs have been listed within the Okanagan, like Okanagan Falls, the Skaha Bench just north of there, and the Naramata Bench just north of there. Out on Vancouver Island, I said that most of the wineries are clustered around the Cowichan Valley. Well, the Cowichan Valley now has its own sub-GI as well. And there are more proposals rolling in constantly for new sub-GIs to be designated. 
There are currently four proposals that are on the table being considered by the BCWA's Sub-GI Task Force. Those are proposals for the Golden Mile Slopes, which would be an area just down the hill from the Golden Mile. Another one is Lake Country. A third is East Kelowna Slopes. And a fourth is South Kelowna Slopes. So what we are seeing right now, and what we will inevitably see more of within the next decade to come, is further delineation of the province into more clearly definable regulated regions. And of course, just remember, when I say regulated, I'm not referring to the strictness that you see in some of the appellations in France, where you have to make wine in a certain way, or can only grow certain grapes. The purpose of VQA is not to limit its growers. It's to encourage them to maintain a high level of quality, and to create a way for consumers to understand some of the distinctions that all viticulturalists are are so proud of. Remember that I said that the VQA program is optional, but you can only put your GI or your sub-GI on the label if you're part of the system. How appealing is that to grape growers and winemakers? Well, currently, even within this optional system, about 95% of all British Columbia-produced wine is certified VQA. So the next time that you look at a bottle of wine and you see that BC VQA, Okanagan Valley, or Gulf Islands, or Golden Mile Bench, hopefully you can understand a little better why those words are so important to us. Thank you everyone for listening to Uncork the Sun today with me. It's a lot of fun talking about the wineries of the province. Remember what I said, you can go to winebc.com to learn about the different wine regions, but to narrow it in a little more focused and learn about the wineries of Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country, the place to go there is www.oliverasoyuz.com. If you haven't been watching our live Virtual Institute broadcasts, then woe, woe upon you. You missed a doozy of one last week, I assume. I'm actually recording it tonight, but I release this a week from now in the future, which for you is right now. But for me, a week in the past, which is right now when I'm recording it, I'm assuming that the Virtual Institute I'm going to do tonight is going to be great. Fortunately, you can watch me after the fact, in the past, in my future, on the Oliver Soyuz Wine Country Facebook page and on our YouTube channel. And put it in your calendar for both of our futures, the next live stream is going to be on June 29th. That, at least, is something we can both look forward to. To post about this show or those live tastings, use the hashtag UncorkTheSun. This podcast is a collaboration between Oliver Asoyuz Wine Country and the Vinstitute Wine School, and is released on the first Tuesday of every month. If you have any questions about wine or winemaking, feel free to email me at moss at vinstitute.ca. The music for this episode was provided by Olav. To hear more of his work, visit olav.bandcamp.com. The host has been me, Moss Shokogel, realizing after talking there that I only have about 20 minutes to get ready for my virtual institute tonight. Hopefully you'll be tuning in, and if so, I will see you last week. Whether you are experiencing the beauty of Oliver Asoyuz wine country from the comfort of your home, or whether you're planning a trip for the future, we cannot wait to raise a glass with you and uncork the sun together. <laughs>